I almost feel like going, and as I was saying, <laughs> there seems to be a little gap between these talks. <laughs> okay, let me do a recap from last night, just to, to get you back into thinking about this material. Talking about dependent origination last night, how basically what we're terming dependent origination really describes the pattern of our experience, patterning of our experience in the samsaric world. Let me remind you again, samsara, going round in circles. Um, I think this is something, I think even psychologically, most of us can feel in the samsaric world. You know, if you're having that experience of deja vu, it's probably true. You know, you're doing the same things or something very similar again and again and again. And so the pattern of our experience is one of the circularity of feeling ourselves going round in circles. So it's describing, in a sense, how we pattern every moment. Every moment is replete with material from the past being filtered through the present and becoming our future. So, as you sit here on your cushions, you are your past, your presence and your futures, all at this moment in time. Your past is here in your present and will become your future. Now, in a way, this is what's being described in terms of dependent origination as well. Because, in a sense, the first two links that I spoke well, quite some length about last night in terms of ignorance and the formations which arise dependent on ignorance in the Pali terms of Vidya and Sankara. It's a pity I haven't got a board because I'd write these up. They're much more memorable when you see them. But the ignorance and the formations that arise dependent on ignorance are in some senses the patterns that we have created in our pasts. Coming through into the first thing which is then conditioned by those past experiences, which is consciousness. So the first object of consciousness for us is in fact this past material. So, ignorance. Remember I was trying to get us to see that it really is not just deprivation of knowledge. If we conceive of it in this way, no matter how much we learn and how much we gather our books around ourselves to do with the Buddha Dharma, it actually won't make a blind bit of difference. It really is not going to make any difference. I mean, and all of this knowledge, all of this understanding is simply head knowledge. That is all it is. What the Buddha is really speaking about in terms of the overcoming of ignorance is something far more profound because, remember the more positive slant, and I hesitate to use the word positive, but I think you probably know what I mean, the more positive content of ignorance is not wanting to know. That is one of the defining characteristics of what it means to be in this state of ignorance. It's like having glasses on which have got a particular tint in them, and somebody says to you, well, the world isn't blue or pink, and you refuse to take your glasses off to see how it is. So we are viewing it constantly through this miasma, this miasma of not wanting to know. Actually, refusal to see reality even when it steps up and bites us, often. Sometimes this is why, of course that it really does take these momentous existential issues, such as tragedy and loss and grief and that, to erupt into people's lives, to actually make them see, in some (coughs) senses, what is actually going on. Not what they would like to be going on, but what is actually going on. So at the heart of the Buddhist path is a great realism about waking up. Remember, we've used this phrase virtually from the first evening. What the content of the Buddha's understanding is, is he wakes up to the way things are. We all of us, in some senses, live fantastical lives. We live lives of fantasy. 
and believe that the fantasies are true in some way. Fantasies encaptured in narrative structures and stories that we tell ourselves about the way things are. Tell stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves. I've often cited this as an example, but a very good example of this can be found, again, not in Buddhist context, but in contemporary novel, a novel by Jeanette Winterson. She starts it off in a particular way, which says, I wake up in the morning and I ask myself, which story am I going to tell myself today? The one about the happy childhood or the one about the unhappy childhood? (laughs) So we're creating stories for ourselves which become, in some senses, the fantastical lives that we live. And we actually often refuse to drop those stories. So this is the real content of what we mean by ignorance. The, The lack of being able to drop the narratives that we dwell within the fantastical stories that we tell ourselves about the world and the people in the world and those that surround us, including ourselves. The problem is, of course, that most of these fantasies are rather unhappy. We live rather unhappy fantasy lives, not happy fantasy lives at all. Because, as I say, the real, that which is, such as, let's take one of these characteristic marks of samsaric existence that the Buddha talks about, anicca, impermanence, will erupt through. And it will probably erupt through in something like loss. Loss of a loved one, loss of a parent, loss of somebody close to you. This is when it really hits home. This is what life is. It's, as the poet Rilke says, we're in this world forever taking leave. This is our position in this world. However, when we leave these fantasy stories, these fantasy lives of thinking that there is such a thing as permanence, fixity, lack of change, then we are bound, and I really mean this in the strong sense, to suffer. We will suffer almost inevitably because of that. This, of course, this prevalent attitude that we have, and I say prevalent because it's not completely blanket, sometimes the real erupts into our lives and we see it and we express it. We wake (coughs) up, if you like, for brief seconds. We wake up for brief seconds and then fall back to sleep again, perhaps into our fantasies, our dreams about the nature of reality. But these give rise, of course, and I'm not saying anything new, I'm just trying to put it in a slightly different way, perhaps a little bit more, I don't know, user-friendly way here. It leads to, of course, habit patterns, ways of doing things, ways of thinking, ways of speaking. These set-down groups upon which we run. These are the habits, again quoting Rilke, that moved in and didn't leave. (laughs) They come in and we find it very, very difficult to relinquish habit no matter how destructive we often find those habit patterns to be. Now what you have to bear in mind that this is, in a sense, all that has been conditioned and will continue to condition that which comes. So, if I was putting it in very bold terms, we don't get a very promising start moment to moment because each moment is full of a whole bunch of habit patterns, a whole bunch of proclivities and ways of doing things and thinking and speaking and acting dependent on ignorance. And remember, ignorance has this content, which I won't go into again, but I just mentioned very briefly. It has this content of sensual desire, the desire to be, and it also has the content of opinions, views, actually, is the traditional way of putting it, but it's more like opinionatedness. So we're full of sensuality, full of this craving to be, and full of these opinions. 
So this is what's transferring from moment to moment and conditioning consciousness. It's conditioning our conscious experience. And this is stuff that you can actually examine. It's not metaphysical theories. This is stuff you can actually begin to see the functioning of by catching yourself out in moments, thinking down certain grooves, saying certain things, behaving in certain ways, all colouring the nature of consciousness. Really, very strongly, we are these creatures of habit. That's often spoken about in this English idiom, creatures of habit. That's what we are. Well, the path, of course, this path which is the spiritual path that Buddhism advocates, is a waking up to this, beginning to see it in action, beginning to break the stranglehold that it maintains over us. And consciousness will condition our body patterns and, of course, naturally, our mental patterns. So this is the mind and body which is blueprinted that I spoke about last night. Setting up tendencies for the future which will mature because actually what the formations are coming through consciousness are nothing other than karma. But please, please don't hear the word karma in any horribly metaphysical sense. It really just means action, intention, result. Actions with intentions which produce results or consequences. Here, So the things that we are doing which have been conditioned by the past will continue to imprint themselves on our body minds. And notice I say that. Really there's lack of dualism. It's a body mind that we're talking about, not body and mind. That was the old Cartesian fallacy of pulling the body and the mind apart and then not being able to get them back together again. This is the great problem we have often in Western thought. So it's conditioning the body-mind. It's conditioning the senses. All of this is conditioning. Literally, we see this conditioning. We don't see the real. This is why to engage, and let me just revert a second to the practices that we're doing this week, that actually compassion and metta and joy are actually ways of reorienting ourselves to see the world. They are literally ways of seeing the world. So instead of with an eye clouded with the fantasies and the aggressions and the violences and the angers, the petty hatreds, the jealousies, the resentments, you name it, all of that stuff. I could give you a whole litany, but I'll depress you. Instead of seeing the world in that way, we see it with the eye of gentleness and compassion and those we come into contact with. We're not going to have this suffusing, um, unless we're really romantic about it, we're going to have this suffusing feeling of goodwill to the whole world. We don't need to because we just need to see who those who we come into contact with and that which we see, we need to see it with love. And this is not just a head thing. This is a responsiveness of the body, a total responsibility, an ability to respond. However, if it's being filtered through from ignorance to formations to consciousness to the blueprinting of mind and body to the way that it's conditioning the senses, then I will only see. This really, in a sense, refers to this opening passage of the Dhammapada when the Buddha says, mind is the forerunner of all things. He's really implying that if that mind is conditioned in a certain way, we get what we see. It's there, presented to us, that the world is X or Y or Z, depending on what mind we bring to our perception. 
So the senses are being conditioned, but the senses, of course, come into contact with things. We can't help it. My eye immediately palpates the visible, as does my ear the oral, my smell, my taste, my touch. It's all, in a sense, palpating the world, feeling it, touching it. Finding it, of course, on that contact with it, pleasant, unpleasant, or neither. Responses, in a sense, which are not thought out. These are not thought out. They are before, almost prior to conscious thought. They are conditioned responses, in many cases. And remember, when I got to this bit last night, I said, now the interesting thing begins. Because from that feeling, there is the craving that arises. So if it's pleasant that I experience in terms of the mental, the physical, the tangible, the gustable, whatever it is, then I want it. I desire it. I want to possess it. And that's all very understandable. This is something we familiarly know. This is something, you know, in a sense, which is common to all of us. When we see the beautiful thing, perhaps, in the shop window that we want, you know, almost to appropriate that which we see, which we desire. You know, this is the natural leanings of a desire. But remember how I described it last night, um, Sorry to be going over the same stuff, but it's just really in a sense to remind you, and it is very important, that, of course, that when we are craving in this way, when we're desiring in this way, then there is no end to it. There is no terminal point. There is no point at which it will become satiated or satisfied. That was the whole point about the Pali word, in its literal meaning, meaning unquenchable thirst. And that has content as well, if you remember. It has the content of sensual desire, the desire for continued existence, and the desire for, in a sense, annihilation, a craving not to be. So these cravings come in three forms, and they're all intermixed. Say, for example, let's just take one example, the craving for sensual things, like be the craving for something such as drink, drugs, whatever it might be. But that might be mixed up, of course, with the desire not to be, because of all of the responsibility that comes with being that we have. Now, I give you an extreme example, but exactly the same can be done in any sensual experience. It can be just simply a manifestation of that desire not to be, for however brief a period that might be. For however brief a period. Because it might be just for saturating yourself in music, in sound. It might be saturating yourself in a cinema film. Now, there's nothing wrong with these things, but they become, of course, manifestations of our cravings. And we search for them again and again and again and again. So, the other side of craving, of course, is often also the craving to avoid. We We want to avoid so many things in our lives... We don't want them to be in our lives whatsoever. We move away from them as quickly as possible. The difficult, the hard, that's often one of the things that we avoid. That which is going to cause us some kind of stress, we move away from these. But of course, as you're well aware, if you just reflect on it, albeit briefly, as you're well aware, of course, we can't avoid these things. Not completely. We can try, we can have strategies in order to try and avoid and to try and maximise and gain what we want. 
but of course they're almost inevitably doomed to a kind of failure because we cannot do that. We cannot have that ultimate overall control that we wish. Now, that's the kind of recap. (laughs) Where we get to, of course, from this moment, from the moment of craving, and this is really a complex, is then attachment, grasping after that which we have craved. The term has the connotations of holding on, the clenched fist gripped round something in the original language. But it also means, and I did do this, mention this very briefly the other night, a couple of nights back, it has the connotation of fueling the flames, the flames of greed, aversion, and delusion. The word originally meant, in its context, in the context it was originally used, and the word I'm referring to here is upadana. It's a very simple word. Upadana referred in the Buddha's time to the rituals that the Brahmin priests used to engage in. And for a Brahmin priest to engage in Upadana was literally to put wood on a sacrificial fire. Because Brahminism was a very sacrificial religion at this period. So it was literally fueling your fire. And that was Upadana. The Buddha turns it around and makes it attachment, which then fuels the fires of greed, aversion and delusion. So he's cleverly manipulating the language of his period to actually show us something else. Now this attachment is the stickiness. This is the stuckness that we often feel. The entrapment that is often here present in our ordinary life that we experience. Quite a number of ways are used to describe it. Um, occasionally you find the use of what's called a monkey trap, a way of trapping monkeys. And there's two versions that are usually given. One is putting tar down in the jungle. And what the monkey does is it comes along and it puts its foot in the tar. It tries to retract it and, of course, finds it cannot do so. It's stuck. So what does it do? It puts in its paw to try and remove its foot. Now it's got two limbs stuck. So it then puts in its other foot to try and pull out its paw and its other foot. Now it's got three limbs stuck. And then it finally puts in its final paw to try and pull everything out. Eventually it gets its head stuck as well, trying to pull itself out. This is, this is the very nature of our entrapment, being stuck in this way. It's suggested, the Buddha suggests, that the real way the monkey should get out initially is to hold on to something firm and solid to pull itself out such as a branch and the branch represents the dharma it represents the teaching which will help to pull you out of this entrapment the stickiness the other one which I think is even more as an example is even more indicative I think of a state that we find ourselves in is that um, they bury something like a bowl, something probably like this, but with a long, thin neck, and they put some fruit in the bottom of it, and it's a long, as I say, it's a long, thin neck, just big enough for the monkey to get its hand into. And what it does is it puts its hand in and grabs the piece of fruit or whatever is at the bottom, and now it's trapped. To get away, all it has to do is let go and retract its hand. But it doesn't do that. I think this is wonderfully indicative of what happens to us. There we are, stuck by holding on to the things that we don't really need (laughs) at all. So we're entrapped often by our own possessions, by our attachments, in other words. We're entrapped by them. It's almost, I think, an accident of languages, and particularly the English language, that language kind of is polar in the sense that often we think of attachment, 
Therefore, what does the Buddhist position have to be as regards that? Because we have synonyms and antonyms. Words that mean the same and words that mean something different. Well, the obvious answer to that is, of course, if Buddhists are not attached and speaking against attachment, then they must be detached. And I always think this is a rather cold word. I don't know if you think so. I mean, I'll leave you to judge. I think it's a rather cold word. It almost implies um, somebody sitting, I don't know, at the edge of life and looking at everybody else feasting. Yeah. Yeah, so somehow like an outcast out of life. There I am sitting on the edge watching all this stuff going on and I'm rather superior and detached yeah, of it all. And I can look down on it all. This is called conceit, by the way. However, really, in many ways, and it's almost an oxymoron, the real meaning of here is when we move away from an attachment, we don't move into detachment, we move into correct engagement, a wholesome engagement with life, rather than an unwholesome. Detachment, I think, is just reaction, in this cold sense, this moving to the fringes of life. Whereas what really is being implied by the Buddha is this movement into the heart of life, into the heart of what's going on, but without that stickiness, without that entrapment. Because this movement, through wholesome activity, wholesome engagement, allows freedom of passage through the world, an ease of passage rather than, as I say, this kind of almost prison house that we can create for ourselves by our attachments. I don't know if any of you have ever had an experience. I remember years and years ago, whenever I used to travel to India, one of the first things I used to do is get rid of all my possessions uh, in order to go, because I used to spend very long periods of time in India. I just used to remember how liberating it felt when you just got rid of everything. You know, just having the bare necessities of what you really required to make the journey. And in a sense, that's what's represented by the, the life of the monastic in Buddhist traditions. Now, we're not going to... You know, I'm not asking you to collect your begging bowls by the door. <laughs> I'm not asking you to do that. But I think this is the question that comes out of it in terms of attachment, is how much do we need What do we really require? The Buddha makes a statement, again, in relationship primarily to his monastic community, but we have to rethink it in a modern, secular world. He says, to be content with little. I think this is a phrase, actually, it should have great resonances in a world, for example, that's being despoiled by materialism. by this kind of rampant materialism of everybody wanting everything and more and more and more. And I think it's indicative that we have to look at our own possessions and attachments, possessions physically, obviously, because they're easy ones to look at, and see what's required, what's needed, what's necessary, and what is not because we all probably have too much stuff and are often trapped by it. Yeah. And it also means looking, for example, at all of our relationships in the world. Because attachment is often confused, and this is actually the enemy, in the sense, of meta. Attachment is confused with love, with real love. Whereas the kind of love that's being indicated here is not the kind of Greek versions of it, eros and philos, you know, erotic love or love of wisdom or any of these things, or even the Christian idea of agape, of kind of this disinterested love of God. It's not that that's being indicated, but a, a love which allows to be, allows the other to be, to flourish in that love. 
And in a sense, that's what we've been inclining our minds towards with the meta practice. So the meta practice is not about creating greater attachments. It's about becoming, in a sense, moving the mind or inclining the mind in such a way that it allows the other to be, but to be within love, within kindness, within the title I gave for this week, affection. And we all know that all beings basically flourish in that. Whereas the love which is attachment is cloying, clinging and smothering and will actually destroy often the person who is loved in this way. So the love of non-attachment, the love that's really being spoken about in the metta practice, is a love that also can allow For example, change and letting go as well. So when we talk about attachment, it really, really does cover the whole (coughs) range of our experiences and all the things. I can only touch, you know, kind of the little tip of the iceberg here of all the things which this covers, this complex of, of... Contact, feeling, craving, and attachment. Because then that's going to lead to the next step in this wheel of becoming, in this cycle of becoming, which is exactly that, becoming, which is called bhava, to become. You find yourself manipulating situations to avoid or to get that which you want. This is what we are doing continuously. You know, this is, in a sense, this is our control over life to maximize that which you like and to minimize that which you dislike. And therefore, you're massaging life in a certain way to produce a certain effect that you want. It doesn't always work, of course, um, but that effectively is what we're doing. So, this is the process of Bawa. Now, this gives rise to what is known technically as jati, which is birth. In other words, it gives rise to a situation where you find yourself. Now, if I've been massaging and manipulating, coming from my complex of craving and attachment, massaging the situation to get what I want, I will find myself probably in that situation, having been driven all the way from ignorance through these things. And that is what we're terming birth. So in other words, it comes into the moment. Some of it will happen blindly, simply through this whole chain, if you like, these linkages, and others will happen much more consciously, where we've manipulated the situation to come into a situation that we want, either the wanting to have or the wanting to avoid. However... The final link, which is old age and death. And what this really means, what old age and death here means, is dissolution and disappearance. That's what it really means. Any situation you find yourself, even if it's the favoured situation, that you've worked and struggled so hard to achieve, will decline and eventually disappear. This is the inevitability of all situations that we find ourselves in, desired and undesired. They will come to birth, they will decline, and they will disappear. And then we're on the wheel again, going through ignorance, formations, consciousness, name and form, the blueprinting, into the six senses, being conditioned by this process, into contact, into feeling, craving, attachment, becoming, birth, old age and death. So no matter whatever you've manipulated and managed to get, all good things come to an end. And then it begins again. Now, 
this is a very linear way of presenting it, unfortunately, the way I've had to do it, you know, to, just to present this basic idea of what's going on in the way that we pattern situations. This is going on moment to moment, very, very quickly, what we're doing. However, we have inroads into it. We can see the process if we are attentive enough. So, for example, we can see the process of attachment. We can see, actually, how feeling will give rise to craving for, craving to avoid with its contents, to the attachment, and possibly even into the process of becoming that arises out of those things, out of those links. So we've got, you know, this is not, as I say, a theory. It's something the Buddha believes is a very, very practical teaching. However, he does say it's not easy. So if you've been struggling a bit, don't worry. Um, at the beginning of the sutta in which the Buddha expounds this in, in great length, at the beginning of the sutta when he says this, um, Ananda, who's the Buddha's disciple and his attendant, says to the Buddha one day, he says, you know, I've got this dependent origination. <laughs> it's, I've, yeah, I've got it. And the Buddha says to him something like, Ananda, think again. (laughs) (laughs) And actually, it's very interesting because the figure of Ananda as being the Buddha's attendant and disciple um, is really everybody. He's the fall guy. He's everybody. He's you and I. We think we get it. And really, in a sense, he probably has because what's being indicated by this He's got it intellectually, but he hasn't seen it. The Buddha actually says, this teaching is profound. And when the Buddha says that, he just means it's really difficult. (laughs) That's what he's saying by this. So this process is going on, but we do have access to it. We can get into this whole you know, this whole way of seeing the way that we're patterning each moment. Now, the reason for this is, of course, if we can break this chain of becoming, then freedom can come in. In a way, this is a determining chain. This is creating the situations that we find ourselves within, moment to moment to moment. And if you really want to put it in very, very simple terms, and this is really about as simple as I can put it, each moment is patterned with our stuff (laughs) that we bring into each moment. So there's never, for example, a moment where we don't bring our histories with us. And we all have our individual histories, (coughs) our ways of coping with life, our patterns um, or strategies of coping with life. Now, some of those might have been very appropriate when they were adopted originally, but of course they've now become sedimented habit patterns which actually end up being not useful, positively destructive, deleterious, to our ways of being. So in examining this process, starting perhaps just to see this link between feeling and craving, just to see that minimal link, because we will, you'll have a desirable, pleasant thought about something you want to do. What does it lead to? Action, the craving to get then to the attachment to it. And this is all feeding back into formations, which is then going to further affect the future. As you know, know, once something is done, it's easy to keep on doing it. Much harder to stop doing something than to keep on doing it. So, in, for example... Resisting the automatic compulsion that arises, and one, I might add that this is not even particularly comfortable, that you have the Vedana, 
the feeling and you have the craving, but you don't act on the craving. Now that can be painful. You can think of it in terms of addictions. Of course, the addict has to have whatever they want. Well, since, as I posed to you last night, we are all addicts in some way or another, then when we stop ourselves from immediately moving into gratification in terms of the craving, and that can be to avoid as well as to have here, then we're going to experience discomfort. And I'm saying that because that's automatically follows with this. There is going to be discomfort, but it's experiencing the discomfort, seeing it, gradually again setting up a more wholesome pattern, a more wholesome way of dealing with things. I'm going to stop there, and I really want to open this up to see if there are questions, because there was quite a lot last night, and there are questions surrounding this teaching. This teaching, if I can put it so strongly as this, is probably the most important teaching in the whole of Buddhism in the whole of early Buddhism particularly. It's the teaching which is the foundation for something else which many of you will know about or even heard about. Something called the teaching of emptiness, which is there. Which is a very simple teaching, really. It's just saying that if anything is dependently originated, particularly all the stuff we experience, and everything is dependently originated, the version I've given you particularly relates to the human mind, the human condition, but everything depends on causes and conditions, then everything must be empty of intrinsic existence. Any kind of existence which doesn't depend on causes and conditions. And that is all the teaching of emptiness is. People make a great fuss about it usually. But it's very, very simple. I'll talk a little bit about that tomorrow night and how it relates to the virtues that we're trying to develop because it's very importantly implicated, this teaching, which I've spent two nights going over, and the teaching of emptiness, in the arising of particularly compassion. Here. Okay. <laughs> See what questions, if there are any. Or comments and responses. It doesn't have to be questions. Yeah. Um, the way you were describing it, it reminds me of um, the theory of psychology by Guy called George Kelly. Mm-hmm. And his, it's called the construct theory. And his theory was used a lot in the teaching of, and research in the teaching of science. Mm-hmm. And what they found was that, for example, a, um, a child would <coughs> know, a bit like Amanda, would know that the earth is round. Mm-hmm. But you give them a particular situation and ask them to draw the earth, you realise, in fact, their construct mm-hmm. is flat earth. Mm. And they found even these sort of differences between intellectual understanding and their actual construct, even in, in sort of postgraduate science students. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way to the, the, why it was used in teaching was because what you would do, and that you would elicit what the child's construct was, so that you could challenge it. Mm-hmm. And until you <clears throat> elicited the construct. You could challenge it. And it seems to me that, you know, like we know that everything is in flux, we know everything is changing, we know everything's going to mm. die, I'm, I'm going to die. <coughs> Somehow, my perception tells me the earth is solid. You know, I'm standing on the yeah. earth. Um, I know I'm going to die, but I'm not going to die, I'm not dying at the moment. You know, in this moment, I'm not really saying, I hope I'm not, but do you see what I mean? It's, it's somewhere yes. there. It's, it's, um, it's a concept. It's not a concept. That's right. So it's not such an easy thing to think, well, I'm just being ignorant about this. Because the whole time your perception is tricking you and you don't realise it. Sometimes you don't actually realise what that underlying mm. construct is. So... Mm. How do you elicit those constructs in order to challenge them and change them? Well, I think the the answer in in Buddhist terms is by constant observation. 
constantly observing, constantly in a sense catching out what you're describing. So, for example, one of the chief methods that's used um, in Buddhist meditation, most of you will know this, is vipassana. Vipassana is insight into the way things actually are. So, for example, I've spoken about the not-self. Sounds counterintuitive. But when you begin to look at what is actually going on, even in the description I gave you, you know, kind of, you know, my rather annoyance at being asked to keep looking to point out where the self actually is. Is it in the big toe, the hair, everything else, you know, and keep on doing it and doing it and doing it and doing it until eventually it becomes an experience that that isn't there. So I hear it intellectually, but it doesn't mean much in a sense. Um, and that is what's involved. So it's seeing impermanence, seeing not-self, and seeing that actually adhering to the opposites of those is actually causing dukkha, is actually causing pain. That's what's constantly being done in Vipassana meditation. Till, in a sense, you click, that you get it. Now, the Buddha has a, a little phrase for it, and I did mention it in one of the talks, which is knowing and seeing. So it's not simply good enough to know something. One has to see it as well. One who knows and sees is one who's liberated from it. And I think this is absolutely true what you're saying because, you know, as I joked the other night, that we can, you know, we can hear this teaching of impermanence and it doesn't take a great intellect to discern it. You know, everything is impermanent. Okay, we might doubt certain things, but the majority of what we look around at, we see as being impermanent. Um, And we can take it on board. We might even take it on board as a belief, because that's the way we operate a lot of the time. However, emotionally, we don't take it on board at all. In fact, we don't take it on board in the minor things, let alone the major things, such as death that you mentioned, this is why you know, we get upset when our pen breaks. <laughs> this is why we get upset when the car doesn't start. You know, these things are impermanent. Yet, do we actually get it that they're impermanent? No, we don't. So, yes, we hear it. And as you're rightly saying, you know, using this other theory, we hear it and we hear it and we hear it, but we don't take it on board in any what I call embodied understanding. And I really mean that because it's a kind of embodied, suffused through the body understanding of it, not just an intellectual head thing. And that really is what a vast proportion of Buddhist practice is about, is actually getting that link between the two, between the knowing and the seeing together. It's almost, again, I mean, I know I've mentioned it quite a lot, but it's almost like, you know, how somebody overcomes an addiction is actually they begin to see, not just know. Because yeah. as I described, you can know all of the problems with addictive tendencies, all of what's going to occur out of it, but still not change and still be addicted yeah. in this way. So we're, in a sense, using that analogy, we're breaking our addictive patterns, but it takes time. It takes one big thing I really would want to emphasize to everybody, it takes patience as well. Yeah. Because we in the West are very speedy. We like to learn things very quickly. And think, you know, sitting down and meditating for, I don't know, a year, a couple of years, we're going to get it. It's going to be really... It isn't. We learn very fast, uh, intellectually, but we don't have the staying power often to stick with the hard graft of actually observing, observing, observing and eventually getting it. One Tibetan teacher of mine actually once said to me, he said, um, he looked very sagely and he said, um, I'm very impressed at the speed with which Westerners learn things. I'm not so impressed by the speed at which they forget them. (laughs) (laughs) (coughs) Are there any other? Yeah. Yeah. And the first one is um, ignorance and sankaras 
they don't really so much um, lead to consciousness. Um, I think that's a kind of mistaken idea, really. What they're doing is, is that consciousness arises dependent on this other stuff being there. So if, if you want a really kind of simple explanation of that, it's really saying, well, what is our first conscious object mainly of? It's mainly of our sankharas, our patterns that we've set down, you know, which are being fed by ignorance here. Yes, they co-arise. That's exactly right. So it's not, uh, in other words, if you had arrows pointing, it's not just pointing one way, it's pointing the other way as well. So they're codependent. And there are other areas in which that occurs as well, where there is a codependence. Yeah. But particularly here between consciousness and sankharas. Uh, well, it depends. I mean, I was trying to give the explanation really of not so much starting again after death, but start with the sense of, you know, not death per se, but I'm talking about dissolution, that any moment that has been um, constructed from this, you know, from this cycle, this chain, or whatever you want to call it, is going to dissolve. And then the next pattern will be of a similar nature. Well, traditionally, that's the way it's often seen. For example, in the traditional interpretation, not one I particularly agree with, I must admit, but within the traditional interpretation, for example, the first two links are seen as past life. The next load of links, the next eight links, are seen as present life, and the last two as future. So that's the way it's traditionally conceived of. Um, and for reasons which I won't go into, I mean, I think it's misconceived in that way because the teaching really seems to me to apply primarily to what's going on now. And I agree with you. I mean, it's really for teaching purposes that you draw a circle. I mean, there is a way, in fact, um, Christina Feldman does it often. It's a very good way of doing it. She lays all of the, um, all of the names out in a big circle and she's done that with you, yeah, and steps between them and shows how actually it's not circular at all. It's actually you know, kind of lots of crisscrossing and zigzagging across and everything else, which is a very good way of describing because that's exactly what's going on with it. It's not this just simply circular. If anything, it's a description of time as much as anything else and the way time is patterned. Um, <laughs> and I'll put this rather strangely. It's kind of loopy. <laughs> So we've got loopy time here. <laughs> yeah. And it's certainly, it's certainly not really even a pattern of causality. It's a pattern of dependence, yeah, of dependencies. And that's, that's occurring there. Yeah. Um, I'm just thinking, um, when we're born, um, does this, all of this kind of stuff happen as we're growing up? from birth and then at some point we kind of get, get into this chain and then, and then it's as if we have to unlearn it what you're saying is we have to unlearn it mm. to get back to seeing the way things really are yeah in a way we do have to I mean, I, I mean the, in, in the kind of traditional way this is presented it's a lot easier to see in some senses because it just says okay the first two links that's what you're born with. It's not a very promising start, is it? Ignorance and a whole bunch of formations. Yeah, that's what you're um, born with, and therefore the rest of our life patterns out in this particular way, and therefore what I'm trying to do is get back to break down the formations and really the ignorance which is underlying those formations. Now, in a way, that's not too far-fetched even for this life because that's exactly what we're doing. Where it comes from, let's forget yeah, the fact is, we don't know. We don't seem to respond to reality as it is. You know, and that is our primary concern. So therefore, we're, in a sense, really trying to untangle the knot that, in a sense, this represents. You know, this continual patterning in this way of each moment, each situation. And as I said, you know, I put it very brutally in saying that just each moment is patterned with all our stuff that we bring into it. That's what's going on. 
So it's really, in a sense, deconstructing all of that stuff which we're continually bringing to experience to get back to the fundamental ignorance which is driving the whole thing. And that's the more difficult bit. The, The point of entry, the point of starting to unravel it is that complex I talked about of contact, feeling, craving, and attachment. That's really where we can observe it very strongly because in many senses the ignorance which is underlying and fueling the whole process is not so accessible to conscious thought you know, at this moment in time until so you start to, in a sense, unravel the knot. Yeah. So in a way you are right, it's kind of unlearning, unlearning the conditioned responses that we have. So, so someone that's awakened, would they... That's exactly right. That's exactly the way it's usually described. The wheel of becoming, the chain of becoming as described in these 12 licks simply does not apply to somebody who's woken up. In other words, they're genuinely responsive to each moment as it arises, not to bringing, if you like, history into each moment. So for some, some people it may be that some of the time they're, they're subjected to it and some of the time they're not. Or is it the case that you kind of once, you're, once you've broken the chain, then it's kind of a completely transformed... It's completely... Once you've, once you've broken the chain completely, once you've got into the content of ignorance and in some sense eradicated that, then there cannot be... It has no starting point, that's right. Yeah, there's nothing that can fuel the process. You see, what's, what's going on for us in ordinary sansaric experience is because we're getting this, this fueling process coming through, it's reinforcing the fuel. It's adding to it. Certainly not diminishing it in any way. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's constantly reaffirming it. Constantly reaffirming. Yeah, and that's why it's so difficult to unravel it. Because there's this constant affirmation that's going on that this is the way it is. Now, I don't wish to depress everybody, but there is ways of getting into it. And Vipassana meditation is one way of getting into it. I actually personally believe that metta practice is another way of getting into it. And starting to break the chains of conditionality. Yeah, because... Um, it's inclining the mind in a very, very particular way, which is helping to deconstruct the processes which are fueling you know, the cycle. Yeah. But it's a bigger story. I'd need a lot more time to describe it. Yeah, Rachel. Yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you don't do either, then you say that could be quite painful. That could be quite painful. As, as I'm sure anybody who's tempted to break a habit <laughs> finds out. You know. but, then, but then what happens? Well, let me, take you, let me take you back a second. I mean, that's one way of dealing with it, is actually to deal with it in terms of the craving. Another is to just dwell with the sensation that is feeling. And that's, again, predominantly the one that's suggested in the tradition. So you can't help, it's really saying, feeling what you feel. If I put my hand in a fire, I will feel it as unpleasant, if I'm not wired up as a masochist or something. (coughs) If I put my hand on something nice and soft and silky, in general, I'm going to experience it as pleasant. And there's no real, real, in a sense, volition behind that. That's just the way, in some senses, it's the, 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 the phenomena is presenting itself to me at this stage. What I can do something about, though, is, for example, if it's pleasant, wanting to grasp after it. If it's unpleasant, wanting to reject it, push it away. Yeah. That's something that we can and do have volition over. 
And that is one other way of breaking the chain. In other words, stop, in, and it's really quite close to what I've been speaking about this week so far, which is breaking the chain of reactivity. Yeah. So, actually, if you think about it, a lot of what we do, I don't say all, but a lot of what we do is simply that reactive pattern. Something presents itself to us, and I'm like Pavlov's dogs, I want it. <laughs> I'm salivating for it. If it's something unpleasant, I'm trying to avoid it. And there's something pleasant that presents itself, I want it again. And so we're pushed and pulled with that, just that pattern of reactivity. And that really is based on sensation. And sensation also then becomes a story of the emotions which get built on it as well, yeah. which reinforces the patterns. You know, I've got to have this because. And then you've got a nice story which usually has some emotions included in it. Or I've got to avoid this because. And then that will have some emotions built into it too. Yeah. So I don't know if that helped you in that. In respect. <coughs> What's that, the monkey trap bit? Well, the, the monkey trap bit is, is the reinforcement. Is, you know, that's, that's, that's how we end up. You know, because, in fact, you know, out of these patterns of wanting and avoiding, I'm trapped. You know? And literally, physically, we can be, obviously, as I was trying to describe, be trapped by our possessions. Yeah. Trapped by our attachments to other, and I don't mean this in terms of real relationship, because what I'm really trying to put across to you, that when there is attachment, there's no real relationship, because it doesn't allow the other to be, because it's cloying and suffocating. You know, there can only really be relationship when there is two senses of respect in this. You know, so... You know, we need to look at all dimensions of life because otherwise we are in the monkey trap. We are just simply trapped by holding on to something we can let go of and feel that freedom. Mm. to actually be able to feel the feeling mm. and not even enter the craving. It yeah. almost seems to be more of a continuum than a kind of boom, boom, boom. Yes, and this also happens extremely quickly as well. I mean, generally we'll find ourselves in the act of craving. Yes. Yeah. And that's what I was suggesting in the first way that I really put it forward, which is the, the uncomfortableness of having the craving and not acting not, on it. Not grasping, yeah. yeah. There's, there's a choice there. That's right. Yeah, we still have that. That's kind of almost a default option. Yeah. Now, I think what, as you well know, what Vipassana does is it opens up the possibility then of having the feeling without the craving. It slows it all down. Yeah, yeah it elongates it, so you begin to see gaps where you didn't see any gaps before yeah, in the process. Um, I think sometimes it's even further on than that, actually. We don't even just see the craving. We're ending up in the attachment. We're holding on to something, you know, and I mean that holding on to avoidance and holding on to you know, what we want as well. So, although some traditions do seem to emphasise that there's this big gap between feeling and craving, there's a gap, and we're the, they're all gaps. Yeah, they're all gaps. Step off it anyway. Yeah, yes, you can. It's a, there's a lot, but these are the most obvious ones, and these are you know this area that we're talking about of this complex, as I'm trying to put it across to you is the one which is readily observable. This is, what the, this is the stuff that's going on you know, moment by moment, probably even as you're sitting there. <laughs> I should think definitely as you're sitting there, actually. <laughs> I'm craving for him to shut up. <laughs> well, that silenced you, didn't it? <laughs> Are there any more? I just comment on that last point um, is that um, Christina, I mean, the first bit of paid for exercise that she did, mm. as far as I remember, because it was about 10 years ago, but it was, um, she, I think she very clearly put it, the, the stepping out point at, at Tamahara, at the mm. point where you have the craving, mm. but you can choose not, not to grasp, as, as, as I remember. Why 
Yeah, it's, it's, the most, it's the most readily observable. That's the reason why. It's the most obvious one that's going to be there for us because you know, we're craving beings at this moment in time. I mean, there are, I mean, there are questions and there are lots of disputes within the tradition as to exactly where you can do it. I mean, there's one oddity of the tradition thinks you can even stop it at sensation. Uh, and some Burmese teachers think, you know, sensation, we have a choice over. Personally, I don't think that's the case, but... <laughs> Yeah, so there is dispute within it. But yes, it's the obviousness of Tanha, you know, either before or after. Yeah, it's arisen. Okay, perhaps. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.